Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. If one looks at Rich Lyons' website, the first area of expertise listed under his name relates to leadership and culture. Today's episode is focused on this idea of intentionally shaping culture in order to lead a business school forward. Rich first joined the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley, as a professor of economics and finance in 1993. Later, he served as interim dean from 2004 to 2005. Rich was named dean in 2008, where he served for 10 years until 2018. Prior to taking on the Dean's role full-time, Rich took a short visit at Goldman Sachs where he saw the impact that culture could have on an organization. He became enamored with the notion of intentionally having Haas define its culture and values. Subsequently, Rich used the four defining principles that Haas as an institution settled upon to help lead the school forward. In this episode, we hear both the challenges Rich faced and also the benefits that Haas experienced from having a clear set of principles define the institution's culture. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. We are uh, excited and delighted to have Rich Lyons here with us today. For those of you who know, I mean, his experience at UC Berkeley Haas is uh, somewhat legendary. And I should add that over those years, we did a lot of searches for deans and Rich was always on the top of everyone's list. Uh, so he and I had a number of conversations. He was always gracious. He was always helpful. He never took our offer because he was busy doing great things at Haas. Uh, between 2008, 2018, really a transformative dean. Since that time, uh, as a chief innovation and entrepreneurship uh, officer, I'm sure the stories persist. And we're really excited to sort of get into the conversation with you here today, Rich. You've got a lot to tell us. We'll try to keep uh, the conversation uh, as best we can to pack a lot of uh, information into a short conversation. Thank you, Ken. Rich, great to see you again. You are passionate about this notion of recognizing the current culture of an organization and then trying to shape and and improve that that environment. Why are you so passionate about that? And and kind of lead us down this pathway of how how does one approach that? Well, thanks thanks for that question. It isn't a topic of great interest. To me, I should start, you know, by saying I'm I was a culture skeptic. You know, I'm an economist. Economists think about human behavior through the lens of decision rights and and rewards, financial compensation, and a lot less so in terms of shared norms and values. So it's not a natural place for me to be coming from. And I think that's part of why I'm, you know, you could call it obsessive. I I, I just my eyes were opened. So let me just tell you a quick eye-opening story, and then I'll sort of answer your question a little more directly. But I got to serve uh, on leave for a couple of years as the chief learning officer at Goldman Sachs. And that role, just because of what it was, put me on something that they call their operating committee. So their HR division, they call, call it HCM, Human Capital Management. And when you're on the operating committee, you, you know, you're in the room when we're talking about 
what bonuses are going to be uh, extended to whom and when somebody misbehaves what happens and but also inside the the engine room of how is culture managed and that was fascinating for me the idea of intentionality around culture Goldman Sachs need not be everybody's favorite institutional culture but but the intentionality of it is very clear and that was eye-opening that's kind of scales falling uh down from the eyes and then I, when I started as dean in fact I rolled from that job into the gene, dean job at Berkeley so I was at Goldman from 2006 to 2008 and then I walk into Berkeley deanship and literally I go on the the Berkeley Haas website and I search for culture core values right nothing 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 had been codified obviously Berkeley's business school like all of our business schools has a culture you have a culture de facto or not but then the question posed very, very quickly for me, what would intentionality around culture at a business school or at a university look like? Because I wasn't seeing a lot of intentionality. And that's that's sort of the origin story of, of my interest. So you arrive on campus and, and how do you weave this into your broader agenda and what are some of the first steps you take? Good question. You know, I think part of it was to try and get some sense for, you know, what's really distinctive here. You know, I, I guess I was being somewhat instrumental in all of this because there's my, my favorite article. I'm a little biased, but one of my colleagues here wrote an article that I absolutely love on this topic. Her name is Jennifer Chatman, C-H-A-T-M-A-N, Jenny Chatman. And she and a co-author wrote a book or a book, uh, an art, article rather called Leading by Leveraging Culture. Leading by leveraging culture. How do you use culture as an instrument to get done what you want to get done? As opposed to, oh, this would be a nice culture or that would be a nice culture. It's no, drive the enterprise's goals with your culture. And it's sort of like, wow, never thought about it that way, right? And so Jenny, you know, talking to Jenny and reading that article and, you know, part of this article is like, here's the levers, okay? There's the content of the culture. Yeah, that matters. And then there's the execution of culture. Are you being systematic about execution? Do you understand what levers to pull? And, and it's sort of like, wow, this is fascinating stuff for me. So when I got to Berkeley, uh, you know, that all of a sudden the intentionality was in some sense imbued from that prior experience that I just talked about. But but the, the process was one of saying, all right, we don't want to write down the same words that everybody else is writing down. I mean, it, I'll, I'll put it in even kind of bearer terms. What is our unique selling proposition? in the culture space, right? If you've got a USP, then it is true, it is valued, and it is different. Boom. You don't have a unique selling proposition if you are not different. Now, I don't want to be overly instrumental, but part of what we did is we basically said, what are our most distinctive, maybe the best question, what is the most distinctive cultural element of this business school? Okay, and, and so, so that's true, and that's different. Is it valued? So another way of saying that is everybody could ask themselves, what's our most distinctive cult cultural element? That's true and that's different. And then look at your mission statement and say, is that valuable? Does that drive the mission? Is that something that's kind of like, we develop leaders that are this way. And now if that cultural element actually leads into helping you develop leaders of this kind, it's sort of like, now it's valuable, right? It's valuable relative to your mission. And then, so what does doubling down on that look like? How do you drive it through everything you do? And so I, I realize that's like a super instrumental way to describe it. And that's not the only way we thought about it. But I think that's an important way to think about it. Are there 
milestones or metrics that you either were able to deploy or find to um, both uh, recognize and celebrate that kind of uh, transformation? Well, definitely there were, you know, we did an awful lot of conversations with an awful lot of people to sort of come up with, you know, what's the short list. We ended up with four of these cultural elements and I can describe them if if they're, they're of interest, maybe they are. But one of my favorite questions came from one of the incoming MBA classes. And we, we shot this through our, our admissions. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to write a poster and make a card and that's all you do, it's like, don't waste people's time. Really? That's like cringeworthy. If you don't act, change admissions, and I mean really change admissions around them, then okay, just as one element, not just admissions, but how do you deal with alumni? How do you deal with marketing communications? How do you deal with so many other parts of, of the school? But this idea that we we needed to make sure that we had a lot of people's fingerprints on what we came up with. So this MBA question was, and there are four of them, as I said, after they've already arrived, they've been admitted, they've come so that this is all familiar stuff because it's so shot to admissions. Hand goes up after after my intro onboarding speech, and she asks, what was the fifth principle? What was the last candidate you took off the list? I love that question because it's like, yeah, there was a list. Of course there was a list. So anyways, just to, to answer your question super concretely too, um, you know, there are awareness metrics. Like do our alums, how many of our, what percentage of our alums know about these four defining principles, right? But awareness metrics aren't, aren't all that satisfying. My favorite metric was we would survey our students as we all do as business school deans. And one of the questions we would ask them was, if you had to pick one reason and you only get one, why you chose Berkeley Haas over other schools, what would it be? And we actually wrote a case on this. So these data are in the case. I'm not telling you something we haven't made public, but the third most cited reason for Berkeley Haas was Silicon Valley. I wanna be in this geography to, to do my MBA. The, the, th- the second most cited was uh, reputation ranking. We didn't try and separate those two things. Those two things had about the same number of citations. That's the, the top reason. The most cited reason with three times as many sites as either of those other two was culture defining principles. It was driving talent decisions. They were saying that tilted the scale. That spoke to me. It's like, boom, that's what we were shooting for. So take me through some examples of some tangible things that you you tried to tackle in the college with your various constituencies, like, for example, your faculty. That's all the time we have, Dave. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> look, uh, look um, you know, the faculty, it, it, I, I came from the faculty. We love our faculties. Um, we also understand that, you know, they're smart people and they want to dig down deep. Here's, I think, the main the main answer. Start from the premise that the skepticism you're hearing from the faculty is rational. If you wanna be an effective change manager as a dean, if faculty get one whiff that you're saying behind their back that they're just resistant to change, they just don't wanna do it, they will bury you every time. And so so I think that that notion of uh, I'm gonna treat until I have a very good reason to not treat this skepticism as rational and I'm gonna try and try and deliver into it. So, so that that was kind of an initial starting point. And, you know, there was pushback. So we actually wrote two cases based on what Haas did. The first case is, it, it, we have a case series here at Berkeley Haas. It's easy to find the case. But um, part A is, what was the origin story? And it does not hold back. There are a lot of quotes from faculty saying, this isn't going to work. This wasn't going to work. I was pushing back. I didn't agree. With, you know, we didn't, 
We, this wasn't a fluff piece. Part B is basically, as I was stepping out of the deanship, how do you keep a culture strong when you're leaving the leadership role? So, yeah, but but there are like eight, you know, eight years in between the, those two cases. But but part A talks a lot about faculty pushback. I remember when we did a strategic plan, uh, we basically connected the strategic plan, as most deans do, directly to our capital campaign. In other words, no, we, we need a forceful, coherent strategic plan if we're going to go into the philanthropic capital markets and have a successful campaign. The faculty understood that. And then we introduced the, this culture strategy, among other elements of our strategy, in that strategic plan. And I forced them to vote on it, for crying out loud. I didn't want somebody to say, we never voted on it. We never did, right? Um, I felt that was really important. And there were a couple of faculty members that came up to me and said, I, I abstained. Actually, they didn't vote no, but I abstained on that vote because this culture stuff just is not my cup of tea. And it was sort of like, thank, thanks. I respect that. Thank you for that. Um, I could also talk about what I said to the faculty with respect to the culture at the time of that vote, because it was, anyways, why don't I say that right now? Because it, I think that was important at the end of the day. I, here's what I said to the faculty. I said, look, I would have been skeptical about this stuff 10 years ago. I, I totally get it. But here's here's one thing that I that I'm going to ask you for two things. All right. And I need these things from you. I basically told them that right as they were voting. I said, number one, on this culture strategy, this may not be your cup of tea, cup of tea. But understand that the MBAs, for example, that are coming to us are working in industry and their CEOs talk about this stuff all the time. So this this is a comfortable place for our students. So if it's not your cup of tea, don't disrespect it in the classroom. Don't disrespect this effort in front of the students. I'm asking you to please not do that. You can be a skeptic, but don't do that. And I don't know of any story of a faculty member who's, you know, in, in their class basically said this culture stuff is fluff. You know, I don't back it. The second thing was a little bit more positive. I said, look at these four principles, which I can outline, but look at these four principles. Are these the students we're proud of? Are these, are these the graduates we're proud of? Come on, let's do this. Because the principles themselves, the content of the principles wasn't something the faculty were pushing back on. They were pushing back a little bit more at a macro level. It's like, this is so soft. Um, now, what I didn't ask them for, the third thing that a CEO might have said is, you know, I'm the CEO. You report to me. We're doing this, right? Now, you, you wouldn't play the authority card uh, if you didn't have to. But, you know, in other words, I, I wasn't going to say when we send the dean's office, when we send your promotion case to the campus for review, there will be a section in there on confidence without attitude, which is one of our principles. No CEO would not ask for that level. But for the faculty, it was sort of like, uh, I'm not going there. I don't disrespect it. And come on, this we can be proud of this. But I didn't say your teaching evaluations from now on are going to evaluate whether you conform with confidence without attitude. I did not feel like I could play that card. So is there is there an implicit message there that you have to be careful and selective when you make decisions so that you're not making too many decisions too quickly? Because there's always a tension in the academic setting between governance, shared governance, and ultimate decision-making. It sounds like you picked you, you picked some topics pretty carefully to come out strong and that you, you spent a lot of time um, engaging in the kind of discourse necessary to get people to the point of a decision. 
I, I would agree with that statement. I, I think, you know, one way also to, to frame that would be what levers, what execution levers, because that, that Matt, right? There's the content. So we got these four principles. These four principles are very Berkeley. One of them is question the status quo. Question the status quo. Now, th there are a lot of institutions, I won't name any names, but if, if their dean or president stood up and said, this university is about questioning the status quo. It's like, they can't say that. I mean, it's just not where they come from, right? So this whole, you know, differentiation thing, it's sort of like, they're not going to say that. And Berkeley can say that. It just, and I'm not saying people don't think that way at these other great research universities. They do, right? But but it was it was distinctive and it was real and it was valid. Employers were saying, I, I you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. I want somebody with that mindset. I want to hire that, right? Okay. So, so the, there was the content piece, but back to your question, the execution piece, it was sort of like, all right, there were certain things. It's like, it's okay if you do this stuff, but it's not, they weren't saying it this way, but it's not okay if you do that stuff, right? So changing the way, you know, faculty are hired, right? I mean, if we were a company, you know, of course, the hiring of every employee would have culture driven through it. But if I stepped into the faculty hiring process or the, you know, the PhD student selection process, it's sort of like, oh, not stepping in there immediately, right? But if it's communicating with alumni, communicating with recruiters, tweaking admissions in various ways, those were degrees of freedom I, I felt like felt like I had right from the get-go. And real quickly, that, that part B case that I mentioned actually says, here are a bunch of things we changed eight years later because the faculty were comfortable that we were getting enough positive return that we never could have changed at the beginning of this because there was way too much skepticism on the front end. So th this clearly became integrated into the identity of, of Haas. Do you distinguish the journey you guys were on from what others might refer to as a branding experience or a branding exercise? Or, or is, is there a similarity there or do you see distinction? You know, I'm very comfortable with that term. You know, mo a lot of academics aren't. Um, certainly our marketing faculty are. But for some people, you know, they view branding as, you know, narrowly messaging, right? And I think the people that are our colleagues who are experts in branding, it's sort of like, no, you actually have to fulfill the promise. I mean, you actually have to have to do something. And so, so I'm comfortable with it in that sense of, no, we changed who we are. We changed the mix of students we want to attract. We, we, we change the way we think about where we want leadership to be going with respect to our school, right? I mean, it, it, if in the mission statement, so many of us say we develop leaders who are X, right? It's sort of like, well, what, what is X? And is X distinctive? And is X what the future needs? Anyways, so I think that that was part of it. branding, yes, but branding in that in that larger sense. Rich, we would be remiss uh, not to also take advantage of your insights on life after deaning, because um, it's been, I'd say, distinctive and really, uh, you know, wonderful continuity. And in terms of, you know, sort of career pathing, it's not exactly traditional. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of what the last three or four years have been and what you've done before may in fact have prepared you for what you do today. Well, thanks for that question. Like so many of us, when we finished, I, I had a year of sabbatical and loved it. One of the things that was happening at Berkeley 
Well, at the time that I, so I stepped down, as you mentioned, in 2018. And at, at Berkeley, like all of our universities, there's just this, this fervent, this, this excitement around innovation and entrepreneurship. So I, I mentioned I'm, I'm an economist. I'm not an expert in innovation and entrepreneurship, but you can't be a dean of a modern business school and not have thought about innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, so I, I thought a bit about it. And then Berkeley created a new role on campus. So the current role that I'm in is not a hospital. I'm effectively on leave from my Haas faculty position, and I'm in a, a staff position at UC Berkeley. I live in the vice chancellor for research's office right now, right? That's where my appointment is. And it's a 100% appointment. I'm not, not teaching right now. And so this innovation and entrepreneurship officer role is fascinating because, you know, Jennifer Doudna wins the Nobel Prize in biochemistry for gene editing and, and CRISPR and so forth. And, and their company's getting created. It's like, wow. I mean, there's science going on on this campus or any of our campuses. I think we as business school deans mostly aren't, aren't really tapped into that part. So, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, the beginner's mind where somebody says, all right, this is you're going to have to learn some stuff now. I'm mean, like, for example, the tech transfer reports into me, you know, patenting and licensing. And so I was like, wow, invention disclosure forms. I just haven't thought about that world at, at all. And and so so I'm I'm learning a lot. But but I think part of the question also is uh, hopefully I'm bringing something to the table. I mean, I know something about business and what makes commercial success work and how, how you develop people and support people in, in commercial success. And also, how do you message around what's going on? I mean, how do you tell the story? I think one of the things we, we get better at as deans is we're better storytellers than, than we were when we started. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to tell with, with a lot of help uh, the, the Berkeley innovation and entrepreneurship story in a bigger way. Well, it's been uh, just wonderful having you on uh, on the show today, Rich. I've learned a ton. I, I'm, I'm sure Ken did as well. Thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. No, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for reaching out. So, Ken, what was your reaction to uh, to Rich's story there? You know, it was really interesting, Dave. I I, I think by initiating the conversation about drawing from his purview and experience at Goldman Sachs to sort of draw uh, sort of into the behavioral economics of faculty leadership in an academic institution was very interesting and insightful. And, you know, the, the choices he was able to make respecting sort of the established traditions, respecting faculty governance, but then also sort of identifying priorities and, and, and creating sort of a, a way to get to yes on some interesting decisions, really, really creative. Right, right. I, I was impressed by his candor in, um, in dealing with faculty skepticism. And basically what he said was, hey, don't admonish it, you know, but rather honor it and, and and confront it. Be authentic about it. And I I just thought that was a remarkably smart thing to do. You know, we 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 at the end of the day, we're uh, as deans, you you lead through cajoling and and moving the institution forward. But you do need to, uh, if you don't have the faculty behind you, you you're you're not really leading the organization. And no, no two cultures are the same. Uh, you know, there may be similarities, but respecting the culture that you're in and then creating the kind of incentives 
to uh, to move forward shows a lot of uh, a, a lot of authenticity on his part, a lot of um, sort of real world common sense, and a lot of respect for others. His his approach to changing and shaping culture was it, it reminded me of the conversation we had several months ago, Ken, with uh, I.D. Kessner from Indiana. Um, this notion that shaping culture and shaping one's fundamental core identity was very similar to Idy's ob- objective of, of building an, uh, a building a brand for Kelly. And I don't know if you recall that episode, but she was just, she was hellbent and really made that her number one priority in terms of shaping the identity and the, and the future of that organization. And so in, in Idy's case, she brought external resources to that challenge. But in Rich's case, he it was it sounded like a ground up type of internal exercise that le- led to very similar uh, goals and achievements. Yeah, and you know it's interesting in both those cases and in others, it challenges the notion that a dean doesn't just rent the seat for his or her term. That in fact, you know, there is there is some legacy. There are some there are some traditions and some some uh, initiatives get laid down that actually are foundation for subsequent deans and uh, next iterations. Well, what a great episode! Very good. Really, really enjoyed it, and um, hope others will as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.